Let's come to the Lord and let's open His Word. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank You so much for, for this day already. Our hearts have been touched. We've laughed. We've, uh, we've cried a little. We've, um, we have enjoyed worshiping You. Looking forward to our eternal home as we read in Scripture. And so, Father, we thank You so much for all of this. Now we have the privilege and the blessing of opening Your Word. And I ask that You would that You would teach us as we come here. For Lord, we are a needy people. And so, we ask, Lord, that You would help us to, to not just hear Your Word, but that we would understand it. And we would not just understand it, but that we would apply it. So Lord, work through the stammering lips of this speaker and You speak clearly that which we need to hear. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We probably can't tell it right now by looking around in the room around us, but somewhere here this morning perhaps there's some folks that had a bad morning. Even on Mother's Day. Unmet expectations, bad attitudes, short tempers, and harsh words. Someone overslept or they didn't want to get up. Someone hogged all the hot water. Someone made a mess. Someone didn't clean up the mess they made. There was Someone expected somebody else to do all the work of getting the kids ready or whatever. And then someone was waiting impatiently while somebody was running late. And there was bickering, even perhaps yelling in the car or perhaps just as bad. Tense silence as each person hugs their door and uh, leans away and while their lips are silent, their mind is smoldering with angry words. It may not, hopefully didn't describe your family this morning, but I have a feeling that sooner or later, uh, most of us have had a Sunday morning like that. Except for my wife and me. We've never had that. The reason is not because we're super spiritual, it's simply because that for the last 40 years, it's only been a handful of days that we have ever been in a car together on Sunday morning. (laughs) I usually am leaving as she's getting up and we never talk until we get to church. So that's our only excuse. (laughs) Most of us have had those times and sadly for some of us, Those times aren't rare, they are a frequent, maybe even a daily occurrence. It makes it hard to come to church, by the way, on a Sunday. makes it hard to say Happy Mother's Day. Sometimes, I know in talking to some folks, they don't want to go home. And it's days like that and times like that that fuel questions like, how can we bring peace to our home? How can we make our home a pleasant place? How do we fix a troubled marriage? How do we live with an unreasonable parents or an unreasonable difficult spouse or a frustrating kid or an obnoxious stepbrother or fill in the blank with people under your roof? This month we're answering questions you've asked. So this morning, let's look into the Word of God and find some answers to this question. How can we have a peaceful home? If you're here in Romans chapter 12, I encourage you, if you haven't already, uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in front of the pew there in front of you. 
And I should have, if I'd been smart, I would have looked up the page number to help you out if you need. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And if you look at this passage and start skimming through it, one of the first things you'll notice as you look at this passage is it has as it has absolutely nothing to do with homes and families. You read through there, you won't find the word home anywhere in there. You won't find the word family anywhere in there. You won't see it talk about husband. You won't see the word wife. You won't see marriage. You won't see uh, the word children. You won't see brother or sister. Actually, brother may be in there. I have to. <laughs> but you won't see it. those words in there because it's not about families. So, Pastor, why did you pick this passage to talk about families? Well, you see, this passage here in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians, which is probably most everybody in this room. People who say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And in the first 11 chapters of this book, the Apostle Paul has laid out how God has been so gracious and merciful to us. We are hopelessly lost. We are sinners, and as sinners we deserve hell, and we're in a world of hurt because there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. We are helpless and hopeless. But God, who is rich in mercy, has sent His Son. God has demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that if we place our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ, we can have our sins forgiven. We can have a relationship with God that has been destroyed, be renewed. And we have heaven too. All of that is the mercies and grace of God. Chapters 1 through 11. And then he begins chapter 12 with, Therefore, in view of all God's mercies, what should be our response? And here in these a few verses later, he gets real practical and he talks about what a difference all that mercy of God that we have received as believers in Christ, what difference it should make in how we treat one another, in how we relate with people. An interesting thing that I have noticed is that, wives, last time I looked, your husband is a people. I know at times it doesn't appear that way. But He is a people. Husbands, your wife is a people. Parents, your kids, believe it or not, are people. They're just little people. But they're people. And as Dr. Seuss said, a person is a person, no matter how small. I think that's Horton Hears a Who, I believe, if I know my Seuss books right. And then um, kids. I know this is really hard to believe, but your parents are people. See, what we really need to know in our homes is how we deal with people. And that's what this passage is all about. And so we're going to look at this passage this morning. We're going to put on some different glasses. We're going to put on the glasses of family. And we're going to look at here to Paul's, Paul's instructions to us, at God's instruction to us through Paul, about how we are to deal with people. And we're going to look at it through the lens of family, through the lens of marriage. The lens of our homes. See, I've been in ministry so long, and as I look in my experience, and as I look in the experiences of so many that I've dealt with over the years and talked to, and I realize there's a great tragedy, and the tragedy is this that so many people treat their boss 
and they treat their co-workers and they treat their classmates and they treat their neighbors and they treat their bowling buddies and they treat the, the, their friends and they treat the waitress at Denny's and they treat the, the, their, uh, you know, the guy that cuts their lawn and the lady that cuts their hair and they treat all of these people better than they treat the people in their own family. The very people that we should love the most, we tend to treat the worst. And so it is that our family endures our foulest moods. Our family bears the brunt of our worst criticisms. Our family is on the receiving end of our harshest and most biting words. But it ought not to be so. Those closest to us, whom we should love the most, should not receive our worst. They should receive our best. And so we should take the instructions that the Word of God gives to, to us on to, as to how we are to deal with people in general... And we should really up our game when it comes to family, right? And so let's learn here. This stuff applies to all of us, whether you've got preschool kids or grown kids, whether you are just starting a family or you're newlyweds or you're, you're empty nesters or you're uh, a single adult, whether you're a blended family or you're, you know, whatever your thing, newlyweds, oldieweds, I don't care what state you're in, this stuff has application to you and your home. But just be warned as I start this morning, there's some powerful stuff here. It might sting a little as we read it because it's radical. But it has the potential to change our homes for good. Even if they're already good, it will make them better. Let's dig in. By the way, in these verses from verse 9 to verse 21, I count some 30 different commands and instructions. So obviously, we're not going to dig real deep in each one, on each one. So I hope that our time here this morning, that's why I want you to take some notes, I want you to go back and reread and reread and reread and chew on this the rest of this day and through the week and, and look to really put it into practice to help us kind of get a bigger picture, I see these 30 some odd commands kind of unfold in four big points. And each one of these big points builds on the other. And so that will help us as we go through the passage. First big point we find in verses 9 to 10. Let me read them. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The first big point is you and I need to be real in our love. We need to be real with our love. We, the defining characteristic the Bible tells us for believers in Jesus Christ is we are to, to love one another. Jesus said, you'll recall, John chapter 13, the last night before the crucifixion, as Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, He says there in John 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you are My disciples, if you have love one for another. 
So John, writing his little letter, 1 John chapter 4, he says this, he says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He says a little earlier in the book, a chapter before that, he says this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You see, the point it's saying is that for the person who says, I love God, I love Jesus, but they don't love their brother, they don't love their wife, they don't love their husband, they don't love their kids, they don't love the people close to them, around them. He says, you're, you're kidding yourself. Truth's not in you there. So he says here in this passage, he says, be Real. Don't be a hypocrite. Let love be genuine. Love isn't just lip service either. It's not, well, I love you, I just can't stand you. (laughs) We've all thought that or said that. But he says again, going back to John's little letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In truth, in action. Or as Paul puts it here in our text in Romans 12, let love be genuine. Don't just talk it, do it. Love isn't an emotion. It's not an emotion that we fall into. That's what the songs say. That's what the movies say. But that's not love. It's not an emotion that we fall into. Love is a choice that we make. It's a choice to do the work of love. And as the rest of this passage unfolds, it gives us some real practical ways in which love shows up. How real life, or real love, always shows up in real life. Shows up in tangible ways. And and he makes a comment here that seems kind of odd. He says, let love be genuine. And he follows it with that little phrase, abhor what is evil. I wonder, what in the world does he mean by that? Abhor or hate what is evil or wrong. Why is that here when he's talking about love? I'll tell you what it's not. When he says here, hate what is evil, he's not saying, what you need to do is grab a picket sign and go run down and picket the local bar, the local abortion clinic, or the local you know, drug house or whatever. He's not saying that. He's not saying it also. He's not saying hate evil in people. So you... you point out the sin in your wife, you point out the sin in your kids, you point out the sin in your parents, that's not what he's saying either. What he's saying is, abhor or hate the evil in you. Abhor, hate the evil that pops up in you. I know that because of the next phrase where he says, cling to what is good. That's very, that's very personal. You cling to what is good in your experience, and so you hate what is evil in your experience. What he's telling us here is that sin is the relationship breaker. Sin is what destroyed our relationship with God. And sin is what destroys our relationships with one another. So we should hate it. Sin is what caused Jesus to have to come to die on the cross for our sin so that we can have a restored relationship with God. 
And if we have a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ because of His sacrifice for our sin, that's that mercy of God back in the first verse it talks about, of chapter 12 here. It should change our relationships with one another. We should hate sin and hate when it shows up in our life. And so we, we hate those things that, that, that creep into our life and our mind and our heart and our, and our actions. Lying, deception, jealousy, envy, greed. Ignoring those whom we are supposed to love is evil. Being vengeful, wrathful, angry at those we love is evil. Demeaning, demeaning, belittling, putting down those whom we are loved, that's evil, it's wrong, it's sin. We need to hate that. Cling to what is good. And then we read, he went on, he said, love one another with brotherly affection. I love the way the New American Standard Bible translated. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Simply, it just means, I care about you. I care for you. That's brotherly affection. I just care for you. And then another thing that we find interesting, all of you who have siblings, you understand what sibling rivalry is. I have two brothers. I get it. They were a lot older than me, but I was determined in my life I was going to do better than them in everything. And that's kind of the sibling rivalry. I watch it with my grandkids as they compete for, for affection. One of them comes over and gets something, there the other one is. You know, trying to horn in, muscle in, because you know, we all want to get what the other person's got. And so normally we think competition and relationship is a bad thing, but it's an interesting thing here. He calls us to competition. Compete, he says. But look at what the competition is. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Get into a competition in your family to out-honor one another. See, I wonder how many of you woke up this morning... And thought, how can I honor my husband today? I wonder how many of you husbands got up and said, I wonder how I can honor my wife today. I wonder how many of you kids woke up this morning and said, I wonder how I can honor my mom and dad today. Probably some of you did because you wrote, it's Mother's Day. If there's any day we're going to do it, it's today. I wonder how many of you as parents wake up and think, how can I honor my kids today? Pastor, what do you mean by honor? I don't mean just bring them breakfast in bed and buy them a card. See, to, we, we need to be aspiring to, be, to work hard to honor those in our family. Compliment them, encourage them, praise them, build them up. Let them know that they are loved. Let them know they are valued. Let them know they are significant. This is the fertilizer in the garden of our home. It needs to be applied liberally and it needs to be applied often. And I have a feeling when we look in the mirror, we all see we do not do this as we ought. Honor one another. Matter of fact, don't just honor one another. Compete. Work to outdo the others honoring you. 
Now that may not take much depending on who else is in your family. They may not be honoring others at all. But if they do start honoring folks, you try to outdo it. That's healthy. It's biblical, believe it or not. First big point. Be real with our love. There's a second big point here. We find it in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Second big point is this. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Serve the Lord. Put Jesus first as Lord of your life. The very best thing that you can do for your marriage, the very best thing you can do for your relationships, the very best thing you can do for your family, even the very best thing you can do for yourself is serve Jesus. Live for Him. Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking. You know this verse. You've heard it many times. He says, For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, for my sake, will save it. The simple point is this. If we live life our way, if we, lie, if we live life the way we think it ought to go, if we chase our dreams, if we chase our ambitions, if we make it about us, we will always end up empty. But if we live life for Jesus Christ and we want what He wants and we chase what He wants and we desire what He desires and we live for Him, we will find everything in life that we really ultimately wanted. And it may not anybody be anything we started off thinking we wanted. But Jesus said, I have come to get, that they may have life and have it to the full. It's a great paradox because if we chase what we think we want, we end up empty. If we chase Jesus, we end up full. And that's why it's the most important thing we can do for ourselves, but for our family and for our relationships is serve Jesus. He goes on. In this, we need to not just serve Jesus, but he says... We shouldn't be lazy. Don't be slothful in our zeal. Don't lay around on the couch waiting for everybody to wait on you. Get busy serving Jesus. When you serve Jesus, by the way, we end up finding that we end up serving others. Because ultimately, serving Christ involves serving others. He keeps going. He says, be fervent in spirit. Literally, that word fervent means to boil. Be eager. Be active. Be enthusiastic. Be proactive. Get busy. Get busy serving Jesus. He keeps going. Verse 12. A few more thoughts along this line. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. As you live life for Jesus, be optimistic. Rejoice in hope. Don't be a depressed, miserable, complaining person. That's so often the picture people have of Christians, but it shouldn't be what Christians are. Christians should be, as he says here, we should rejoice. We should be people full of joy. Not people who just wear a little smile. <laughs> and not people who are just... Happy and optimistic because I'm just an optimistic person. But he says here, be optimistic or be rejoice in hope. But what hope is there? The hope there is, is that Jesus is in control. That's not the hope, that's the fact. And because Jesus is in control, there's hope. 
Rejoice in hope. You see, I've read the end of the book. Revelation, you know what happens? We win! We go to heaven. We live forever. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And we enjoy unimaginable glories and wonders and pleasures and joys forevermore. We've got every reason to be optimistic and no reason to be depressing, sad people. Be optimistic. And he goes on, be patient. Be patient. Even when things look bad, why should we be patient? Same reason as the one before. Because Jesus is in control. Because Jesus is the sovereign God and He's in control. Not only do I know how things are going to work out in the end, I know He's in control of the process right now. And so when life looks dark right now, when my situation is grim, when things aren't going the way I think they should go, I can be patient because you know what? Jesus is in control. When things aren't moving as quickly as we think they ought, when our kids aren't growing up as quickly as they think we ought, or they're growing up too quickly, or when our husband isn't changing, or our wife isn't changing, or life is not what we thought it ought to be, we can be patient because He's in control. Lastly, He says, we're to pray. Be constant in prayer. We need to be faithful and consistent and persistent in prayer. Why? Because Jesus is in control. And He calls for us to pray. And James writes in his little letter, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Last year I had the opportunity to meet some very special folks. A lady named Angela Yuan was up at the Moody Pastors Conference last year and I had the opportunity to hear her, actually her whole family speak. Angela was about to commit suicide. Her marriage was in shambles. She, her husband and her were distant. They'd never had much of a marriage. Her beloved son, Christopher, had broken off relationships with the family. He was immersed and lost into a world of sex and drugs and parties. And all of the dreams of her life for this perfect marriage and perfect family were shattered and she had just had it and she was going to commit suicide. She was determined to do it. She was working out her plan to commit suicide. And, and as God had it, she came across this little booklet and she was reading it on the train to go visit her son before she planned to kill herself. And as she was there, she read in that booklet there was the message of Jesus Christ. She'd been an atheist all her life. And as she read this, she knew this is true. God loves me. Jesus died for me. And she placed her faith in Jesus Christ and everything changed. She realized what she needed to do in the weeks or so after that. She realized she needed to start praying for her family. And she made a little space for in her home where she began to just pray. Six months later, her distant husband was overcome by the change in his wife and he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Later came the news her son was in prison. She continued to pray. Matter of fact, she started blocking out every Monday. She fasted and prayed all day long for her son. 
Six years later, still in prison, her son became a believer in Jesus Christ. Today, her son Christopher is a Bible prof or a prof of the Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He's a speaker who goes around and and speaks to families and to kids caught in drug abuse, homosexuality. And uh, theirs is a marvelous story. It's a testimony and the reminder of the faithful, fervent prayers of a mom. Actually, it's a call to all of us to be faithful, persistent in prayer. Be real in our love. Live for Jesus. Verse 13 through 16 there's another topic that comes up, and this is where the shoe leather starts to, or the, the, the reality starts to be put to our love. It starts to show up in real life in our, in our relationships. Here's the daily grind, the daily living of what love looks like. Verse 13. As love is fleshed out, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, as we put this to work in our homes, it means we meet the needs of others. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Look for ways to care for, to help to your wife, to help your parents, to help your husband, to help your kids. Rather than demanding from them, rather than being a drain upon them, how can I serve them so their life is easier, is better? How can I meet the needs of others? He says, seek to show hospitality. I say here in your home, be hospitable. That seems an odd thing to say to folks at home. How do we be hospitable? Simply this, it's how do we help make the others in your family feel at home at home? Husbands, how can you make your wife feel more at home at home? Wives, how do you make your husband feel more at home? Parents, how do we make our home the place where our kids want to be rather than the place they want to escape. Kids, how do you make your home a place where your parents want to be? See, it applies to all of us. What can we do to make our home a good place? Be hospitable. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless others even when they don't deserve it. Even when they're stressing you, even when they they are bringing difficulty into your life, bless them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be empathetic. Try to understand their world rather than just reacting when they come in with wrong attitudes, with wrong actions, with wrong things going on. Rather than just react to them, try to shut them down, try to change them, why not listen? Why not try to walk a mile in their sketchers or their, you know, their crocs? Listen to their hurts. Cry with them. Share in their joys. Be empathetic. Verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Be agreeable. Don't be argumentative. Antagonistic, contrary, critical, difficult, opinionated. You don't always have to be right. Be agreeable. Verse 16, continuing, he says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Be humble. Be humble. The Christian life is not about now. 
And it is not about me. To sum it up in two short phrases, it's about heaven. We, the Christian life is really about the rewards aren't here, the rewards are there. And it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about others. You may be here this morning, you may say, Pastor, that's all well and good. I get all that. Those are great things. But, you know, I wish you knew what my husband, my wife, my kids, my family is like. It's a difficult place. And I, I, I really try all this stuff. I do all this stuff. That's their first mistake. <laughs> if you do all this stuff, you are a much better person than I am. Tell you, as I, as I read these things as we going through them, I'm not pointing fingers because when you do that, all these fingers are pointing back and, and they are. There's lots of room for all of us to grow here. But what do we do when your spouse doesn't care? They're not trying. They're not doing these things. What do we do when the kid is rebellious? What do we do when our parents are cruel? What do we do? Interesting, these next verses are for you and for me. Because when the Bible speaks to us about how we are to treat others, it's never about how they treat us. It doesn't change. Let's just read what he says. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In short, how are we to treat others with grace? Whether they deserve it or whether they don't. Whether they respond well or don't. Whether they're doing what they ought to do or not. We need to treat them with grace. Grace is what we've gotten from God. That's chapters 1-11 through 11 of Romans. It's what we do not deserve. And so we give others in our family what they do not deserve in terms of good things. Four quick things is how this graciousness plays out here from the text. Verse 18, he's saying, you do your part. In as far as it depends on you, as much as possible, as much as you can do, you do your part. You do the best you can to do everything here on the list. A little secret from almost 40 years in pastoral ministry. Can I let you in on this? You will never change your husband. You cannot change your wife. You cannot change your kids. You cannot change your parents. You and I can never change another person. We can't do it. Only God can change somebody. Our responsibility is simply to do what we're supposed to do. You do your part. And along with that, verses 17 and 19, don't repay evil for evil. If they do bad stuff to you, don't do bad stuff back. We teach that to our kids, but we don't practice that as adults. <laughs> Two wrongs don't make a right. Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, do good to the very ones who cause you grief. 
And last, and next to last, actually there's five things here. Leave the outcomes to God. What if I don't see any change? Leave it up to the Lord. What if they never change? Leave that up to God. You do what is right. And lastly, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Or as Winston Churchill said it, never give up. Never, 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 ever give up. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Most of you know it well. You know how it goes down through all the things and what love is and what love isn't. And it says, love never fails. It always hopes. It always endures. It never quits. Well, there you have it. This is a radical text, isn't it? And it is full of all kinds of stuff. That if we apply, it will revolutionize our relationships. I'm out of time. The real question is, are you going to do it? Are you going to do this this week with your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents? And it leads me to one more question. See, all of this is about being transformed a transformed relationships at home begin with a transformed life and a transformed life only comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ because only he deals with the root problem of relationships and that sin and if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ I hope you will understand from everything we've said this morning God loves you God loves you so much that he He did something about sin. God became man to die on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin and mine so that we can have a restored relationship with Him and new, different, changed relationships with one another. If you've never trusted Him as your Savior, you can do that today right where you sit. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Him, the Bible says you just need to Talk to God. Just tell Him, I realize I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe Jesus died for me. I trust Him as my Savior. Father, we confess none of us here have perfect relationships and perfect homes. We are all works in progress. None of us are going to be perfect till we get to heaven. But it's Your desire to change us that we become more like You. We reflect Your love. And it should show up above every other place. It should show up in our homes. Lord, transform our homes. May each of us look to You as we look to this list and we see these things we ought to be doing. May we cry out to You and say, Lord, help. Change me. Transform our family. Not just for our sake, Lord, but for the sake of Your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.